Greetings and welcome to another edition of A Healthy Obsession, the podcast covering soccer culture from around the world. I'm your host, Adam Thowell, and the show is brought to you by Small Goal Soccer. Today, I welcome Steve Bailey to the show. Steve's the founder of Non-League America. We're going to be talking about everything to do with US soccer today, how the current structure is in place, where things can improve from promotion and relegation, grassroots football, everything that makes up US soccer. We're going to cover all of that today. Check out our website, ahealthyobsession.soccer. We're going to get into the show now and appreciate all of you tuning in and checking us out. Cheers. When I first started doing this in 2012, um, you know, and I'm, I'm really not trying to toot my own horn, but like just legitimately, objectively, even haters would, uh, of mine would, would say this. When we started doing this in 2012 as a blog, like nobody in the United States was doing this. Yeah. And now we didn't have a big head start on everybody else. We kind of felt the moment and like, just kind of started around the same time that everybody else was starting to get going. I would say by 2014, 15, there was a lot more movement. But at that exact moment in January 2012, when I kicked it off, like we were one of very few. I was reading a lot of uh, like ground hopping blogs um, in like England and Europe and kind of like snarky tongue in cheek recaps. This, this one that I used to read all the time was called Adventures in Tin Pot. And um, that was like the one that really sparked the idea for starting this blog and this attempt to kind of discover what, you know, non-culture in America was all about. Because I had, I had this inkling that it was real and it was out there and it was probably tied to different ethnic communities that have kept the traditions alive through the years. Um, and it took me, it, it is, but it actually took me a while to like find that and access that angle of the game. Um, but I started just going and cause I, I just, I couldn't go to games for a long time cause I used to work as the car salesman. Um, so my hours were just like oppressive and I just had to always be on the lot and I could never get off in time to, to go to soccer games. So sometimes I would watch on Saturday nights, I watch things on TV. I watch MLS before I realized how they're kind of like standing in against all that I've come to uh, appreciate about soccer. But, you know, a lot of people go through those cycles of learning and education. Um, but eventually I, I got off the car lot and my schedule opened up and that, that was like freedom. And I was able to go pursue this. And that's what, uh, that's what really was the original catalyst for me getting out there and trying to see as many games as I could. Yeah. And, and who's your local team? So, uh, Coming from Massachusetts, the local teams were, uh, I mean, it was the New England Revolution as far as going to MLS. Um, and then the, the actual locals, when I started the blog, was the teams in the Bay State Soccer League, the BSSL. And if you follow on Twitter, you see that they're pretty active in the region. Um, but there's, there's not a big supporter culture there. There's not a big fan attendance, but there is a big competitive you know, adult amateur scene, and but it's for the players. But I was trying to bring like, you know, fans to that scene and kind of socialize that with the people that I went to MLS with. Like, hey, come with us on you know Saturday morning at eight a.m. to you know this high school stadium in Somerville. It's gonna be amazing. And, and trying to sell people on on that idea. But I mean, some of the local writers were uh, giving it some coverage. Um, but again, it was like, 
And then that's through, um, through really getting to know people at the Revs was kind of my introduction to the local soccer scene and find out who was really like more tapped in. And Brian O'Connell, he's the writer who really was tapped into the lower, the lower division scene and the teams down there in Providence and Southeastern Mass with like the Portuguese community was where, and in like Brockton with the um, Cape Verdean community uh, was where like the, the crowds were. Mm. And so eventually getting down there and get those quite a ways from where I lived, like two hours away, but getting down there was where you could find like a hundred people, 200 people going to the games. Now you hear stories from old timers that it used to be, you know, 500 people, 800 people. Yeah. But by 2012, it had started to die down and the league actually disappeared in uh, like 2014 or 15. So, um, and then one of the teams that was coming out of that league was East Providence Sports and they resurfaced in the Bay State Soccer League a couple of years later as Providence City FC, who's mm. the subject of one of our most popular documentaries. Yeah, and, and I, I follow Providence as well. They, they've got something that you're kind of seeing across the board and you can probably speak on it better than I can, where amateur football teams are starting to uh, represent by making their own kits, by you know getting active on social media and, and kind of garnering this digital following, even if no one's really watching them play in person, that they've like another side, like football, I heard it described as football or soccer 2.0, that like teams now are being sort of taken a bit more seriously because they are doing this other part of the game, which, I mean, to me, when I, even when I moved here, it was non-existent. You would never even yeah. really think that. And we had a similar situation here in Phoenix where when I first moved over, this, there was a uh, FC Bosnia and Serbia AZ, and they had 200, 300 people, police presence at the game, because obviously there's a little bit of a touchy uh, history between the two countries. But I don't see that so much anymore, but I have seen... Uh, well, are you seeing more and more of these amateur teams pop up kind of like Providence and find a niche within creating merchandise and a digital presence as well? Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you just pretty much explained it to a T. Um, I think that, well, I have a hypothesis that some of those uh, white ethnic teams that have been around for a long time are hopefully going to tap into some of the kind of mainstream branded energy that's coming along in the online support of Providence CDFC and help get crowds back to those games. But um, a lot of the people that run those clubs aren't as um, digitally savvy as and tapped into the same networks that the people that say run Providence CDFC are. Mm. Um, so like bridging that gap is a big motivator of mine and something that I think about a lot. How can those things come together, whether it's like, you know, maybe tournament collaboration or um, just like friendlies, you know, both sides could learn from each other in terms of what each other is missing. There's a lot of people doing part of it well mm. uh, all around the country, but there's very few people who've like put together you know, the perfect puzzle and got it all together. When you see it, it's amazing. And that's what happens with you know, Chattanooga and Detroit and the kind of like hero stories that rise to the top. But, um, you know, if you dig down, there's all these other clubs that have, like I said, a piece of it. But I'm just looking for, I want to see promotion relegation. I want to see a, a collected system of independent clubs. I think that 
the interest is there. And I think that's part of what our mission is at Non League America to prove that like the soccer culture exists. It's it's being systemically oppressed. I don't and I don't mean in terms of like there's much worse oppression going on in our society. Uh, I, got, world I, right saying, now. Yeah. I don't I don't mean to conflate it, but yeah. but specifically within the soccer realm, it is. It is systematically being shut off from all that it could be to serve the the interests of specific people who are invested in a specific system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the organic organic size of the culture is huge. You look at these Latino tournaments, you know, and these like down in Atlanta, the Mariachi Cup this past weekend, they, thousands of people, not a lot of social distancing going on, but like, I saw the video. <laughs> yeah, and, and a couple of weeks ago in Houston, you know, um, big prize money out there, but that's also not allowed technically within the sanctions of US soccer because there's no bridge between the amateur and fully professional world. So a lot of that, um, the kind of dark money is dark by necessity because there's no sanctioned semi-pro. There's no area for guys to get paid based on you know goal production, incentives, um, small match appearance fees. And from my understanding, you probably know better than me, but I've you know done the research. That's really how the game lives at like the conference level in England, you know? Um, and we have that competitive level, but we don't have a structure that allows that financially to exist, even though it very well could. Um, but it's not allowed. Well, and, and you see so many teams, even in the conference now, that I think people are... I'm not saying the bubble's bursting because that's probably a little bit too uh, easy to say and it's a little bit of a buzz phrase, right? But I think that even friends that I had that grew up supporting Manchester United, I'm from Manchester or Manchester City or Liverpool, are now becoming so disillusioned because they're being priced out because they're realizing the, the clubs just really don't give a shit about you. And uh, you can go down the road and be part of, you know, Stockport County or Bury or whoever, and be part of a community and actually contribute and have a say in some of the more supporter owned clubs. But I've seen that happening even more so in England. Now in the U S before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we have a lot of people that are listening that probably don't quite understand the, the structure and the pyramid of American soccer. So maybe you can give us the breakdown, especially on the non-league side, because everyone's heard of MLS probably, but like j just for people that don't know, explain the structure a little bit so people understand exactly what non-league football is in America. Right. So, I mean, it's subjective, first of all, because we don't actually have a pyramid. This is kind of more figurative in, in our minds, mm -hmm. which is part of our brand, too. Yeah, you can yeah. see that our logo, some of this conspiracy kind of playing <laughs> itself out visually. But, um, uh, like, at the top, you have Major League Soccer, given the Division One designation by um, United States Soccer Federation. Uh, it's a single entity structure. The teams are not independent clubs. They're all local. I don't even like to call them franchises because knowing how traditional, there's like three, three ways to look at structure. You have the traditional European club football where each club is a totally independent business. Then you have American, you know, what we call the big four sports, right? So football, baseball, basketball, hockey in the United States and how those are run, which are not independent clubs, they're franchises. Mm -hmm. And then you have 
um, the single entity of Major League Soccer. And the, the distinction that I want to draw here, which sometimes gets glossed over, is that we're all for independent clubs. We think that teams should be allowed to succeed and fail on their own. Right. Um, but to conflate what MLS is with mainstream American sports is also not true. Those teams that are franchises in, say, the NFL have a lot more autonomy in their dealings than MLS teams have. MLS teams are like locally based arms of a central office controlled by a central office, whereas teams are not allowed to deal directly with each other without running it through in detail the central office who can decide whether they want to like allow a trade to go through. Whereas in the NFL, you know, those player negotiations, they go directly between teams and the league just looks at it to make sure, okay, is this legal? Okay. You know, stamp it. Mm. That, that's how sports works. So um, this single entity thing was brought in to um, be resilient and to allow soccer to continue to exist. Um, in a, a culture where it's, it's not intrinsically embedded. But I think that we're past that phase, but it financially serves the interests of the people who buy into it to uh, keep it going, even when you know, we may have matured past it. So anyway, at the top you have MLS, below that you have USL, United Soccer Leagues, and their offerings I would say are relatively akin to uh, American professional sports franchises. Mm-hmm. Um, you pay a franchise fee, the franchise fee grants you territory rights, which is, uh, again, in opposition to the philosophy of independent clubs, where anybody should be able to start anything, but they, they pay to own certain geographical designations um, and the, being the only team that can operate in that league, in that geographical area. Um, and, they, and the league office makes money by collecting these franchise fees. You pay like $10 million dollars up front without any money going into the club and the club's development, player salaries, marketing, any of that, you just have to fork over 10 million for the right to so operate the, the team. The, bar- the barriers for entry is still really high, right? It's not really like- high. 350 yeah. million to get into MLS now, mm-hmm. 10 million to get into the USL championship, mm-hmm. um, which is the second tier de facto. And then the third tier to so the USL, who runs that USL championship, runs two other leagues. Below that, they have the USL League One, um, which is a little cheaper to get into. You're starting to get into something more accessible for, you gotta have some money to run a team anyway, let's be sure. honest. Um, but you, know, you get down to USL League One, I think that you can run them on budgets for a million or two million a year. It starts to like come into reality, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. For more people. Yeah. Um, and then below, and that's a full length season. And then below that, they have USL League Two, and USL League Two is a part-time short season using amateur players that are sourced from colleges who also run short seasons in other times of the year. In the okay. fall, generally, is American college soccer. So it's like, a, it's like a filler, basically, to keep the players busy in the off-season, yep. the college off-season. Okay. Yep. yep. Right. College off-season. Um, and the first kind of introduction to... Uh, this kind of competitive amateur life. Mm-hmm. And in the past, that was all primarily, like we talked about at the beginning, a kind of um, player-driven situation. 
It really wasn't about the fans. PDL mm -hmm. didn't do a lot of outreach in terms of building fan bases, but it's like, in spite of their best efforts to keep fans away, fans have started to show up. Supporter <laughs> culture has started to develop at these places. Yeah. And you have fans who are passionately supporting these teams for 90 days a year, and then they drop off the face of the earth for like nine months. And it's been on Twitter to, you know, be this community to keep the enthusiasm up when these teams are out of sight for the majority of the year. It's a major yeah. problem. And that's got, that's got to be a hard job for any marketing team, right? Just to keep the excitement up and, and any momentum you build, even if you have a night, like a good season, right? And people get excited. Oh, well, two months later, I forgot because I'm doing something else, right? Like, and, and most of them don't. Most of them yeah. go dark for yeah. at, least, at least six months. And then they come back a couple months before the season if they're really strong ones. Some of them just come back like the day of the first game if they're yeah. terrible at marketing. It really... Uh, it runs the, the gamut because a lot of these teams are just run by like one person with a vision without sure. a lot of support. Yeah. So, um, and then, so in, that's the USL system. Now in parallel to that system, so just to recap, you have MLS at the top, USL championship, USL league one, mm -hmm. and then this kind of part-time USL league two. Okay. Now in parallel to that, coming into the third tier, equal with the USL league one, you have NISA, the National Independent Soccer Association, which is on the same level of the lowest level of full-time pro, full season. And then below that, you have another collection of independent leagues that operate on this kind of uh, short season, the NPSL, which is the National Premier Soccer League. They're less specifically reliant on college players, but they are majority. It's really just a marketing thing because they're less going to the public about their college affiliations in their communications, but functionally, they're still sourcing the majority of their players from colleges. But there is a little more flexibility there. And then you have the UPSL, which runs two seasons, a fall and a spring, and is, so it covers the whole year, gives mm -hmm. players the opportunity to play more games, and has the flexibility of being less tied specifically to colleges. Mm -hmm. And then below, and then equal to that, or below that, depending on your point of view, because again, this is all subjective. You have the local and regional leagues, um, which comprise, like we mentioned at the top, the Bay State Soccer League, the Cosmopolitan Soccer League in New York. Um, all around the country, city leagues, uh, you know, have this competitive play where uh, they're, the best teams can enter into the U.S. Amateur Cup, which is the national amateur competition. They can qualify for the U.S. Open Cup and get their chance to play. That's like the FA Cup. Mm -hmm. um, against professional teams if they make it that far. Um, and that's kind of like uh, the U.S. Open Cup and has had a lot of influence on people supporting of these lower teams from the city and regional leagues. And that's been a big focus of ours, especially through the first like five years of this Non-League America project, um, has been to boost up these clubs from the city leagues that uh, pop on the scene during the Open Cup and then disappear from view for the rest of the year. They have home leagues. We want to socialize that and market that and say, hey, you remember that team that popped up last year that knocked off the USL team out of the blue? Well, they really exist year-round. They're in the, you know, Pittsburgh Soccer League. Like, go go and check them out. Here's where the match is. Um, and Twitter's been great for, for, for you know, spreading that information. 
And do you do you ever see? I know it's kind of a hot topic, maybe highly contested, but do you ever see the consolidation of some of these leagues? Because from the like what you just explained, and my understanding is that there is all these different independent leagues at a certain level, and is it a little bit of a, a detriment? And is it make it a little bit more of a, a problem when there is no unified effort to make it? So there is, let's say, instead of UPSL and MPSL, there's one big league, and there's eight divisions and there is promotion and relegation or is that just too idealistic of a, a, a an idea really i mean we're non-league america is all about idealism and being tied into trying to make this world happen yeah. um but you know being realistic about it it's very difficult and mm -hmm. the reason is the structure you know these clubs are not set up independently and even at the these elite it's like it's supposed to be club over league everywhere in the world. But here in the United States, the league drives the attention and the league drives the clubs. Um, and the clubs are tied into the leagues. The, the owners of the leagues have no incentive because their whole, to do anything different because their whole business plan is based on extracting these franchise fees. Mm. Um, even, at the, even at the lower leagues, like we talked about USL gaining its $10 million expansion fees, and right. that's pretty obvious. Mm. But even like the UPSL, for example, right? They're getting $2,500 fees per club for each season, a fall and a spring, if they play year round. So $5,000, much lower, very small entry point. But right. they, they exist to extract those $5,000 fees from each club. And they try to do, take that low entry point and do it at scale. And they have 400 clubs, each paying in $5,000 a piece. That's their model. The model is built on these fees. So until a league comes up that's decentralized and is just a empty shell, like the leagues in an interconnected system and exists for administrative purposes only um, and to facilitate these clubs, then it's not structured in a way to facilitate cooperation. Everything is just everybody controlling their own little fiefdom. You know what I mean? Well, and, and this, uh, as you mentioned, there's no incentive because of the pay to play and, and the organizational cost of the club paying to play in the UPSL or the MPSL. Mm -hmm. Is there not a business interest or a business opportunity maybe in the MPSL having a multi-tiered structure because that will draw more attention maybe from, I, I'm not, I, I'm probably big, too big, but like an ESPN plus to cover games because there's a playoff game between two MPSL teams for one to get promoted to MPSL one. Is that, is that not more of an opportunity or do, are the right people just not involved in these organizations or, or they just don't understand it? I feel like the people who are involved in the organizations just don't have the vision to see like what could be, what's right there for the taking, yeah, you know? It seems like They're a no so brainer. tied into the way things are mm. that they just can't see what could be and what's like right in their grasp. Um, it's, you know, really frustrating for me and a lot of people who are involved in the game who want to see this change. Um, just because we've seen just, you know, since I've been involved in 2012 over the last eight years, how much it's changed, mm. how, how different it is now. You could say that we weren't ready eight years ago, but like all these clubs, all these leagues have popped up, you know, so many more teams are getting four figures, five figures, well, five figures for like a USL championship, sure. but, yeah. um, and even then just a few, but 
um, most, you know, four figure attendances all the way down to these amateur leagues, mm-hmm. like consistently, not every club, but they're out there in every one of these leagues. Right. Um, like it's all there. So there just has to be somebody who's willing to look at a different business model um, and be willing to embrace it. Innovative thinking, there's innovative thinking out there, but it's not paired with the people with the money. We need to get innovative thinking money people involved in the game. Right. So how, because there needs to be, uh, there needs to be a way to monetize, right? Because the, right. the system that we live in forces us to be able to monetize because you, you still have costs. You still have administrative costs. You need to pay someone to do, but does it need to be as high as UPSL where there's 400 teams or whatever it is paying in five grand a year? Well, it, maybe it doesn't need to be that high, but I guess what's the answer? Where's the fix? Is, is like you just said, you need someone with the, the, the monetary innovation to be able to figure out, okay, we don't need to charge the teams anything, but the, well, the, the, fix teams- is, the fix is what, what ProRel for USA and what that advocacy is all about because it's a lot more than the movement of clubs. Only part of it is the movement of clubs. What it's really about is other people use the term open soccer and that's mm-hmm. participating in the system the way that it's played in every other part of the world, in Europe, in South America, in Africa, in Asia. You know, this is how the game is played and that is participation in... Um, uh, training compensation and solidarity payments as a revenue source, which is blocked by our federation for amateur clubs. So they can't develop players and sell them. Like that's what clubs do, right? Yeah. That's a major revenue source. Huge and revenue that's source. also a part of it. So pr- when we advocate for promotion and relegation, we advocate for the total, all the components of the system beyond just the movement of the clubs. Financial structure of the soccer world. Is, is so, are the, are the people that are firmly against this, sorry to cut you off, is the people that are against this, is it just because the status quo is too good for them? Like, why would anybody yes. in a position of power want to change any of this? Right. It's because of the influence of Soccer United Marketing, which is mm-hmm. the uh, marketing arm of MLS and MLS's relationship with uh, the controlling the U.S. Soccer Federation. Mm-hmm. So the, the soccer federation is tied in functionally with Major League Soccer's business model, and FIFA accepts that from the United States, where they don't accept that from hardly any other country. So a few backhanders going on there. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's really what it's all about. I think you know if media rights can be secured for independent leagues, and we're starting to see that now. I'm really excited about NISA. And what they're doing. Um, so NISA, so correct me if I'm wrong, NISA don't charge an entrance fee, right? Uh, I think they have a very small it's one, um, okay. but relatively small. I want right. to, I don't have all the details, but yeah, it yeah. might be a low, low, like 100,000 or something like that. But, but you've got to pay, kind of, pay the players in NISA, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a full-time pro. Salaries are low. But you got a full roster of guys making 30 grand, 40 grand, 50 grand, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but it is full-time pro. The, uh, the entry fee is, is as low as legally allowed by U.S. Soccer Federation. Because um, they, they put these barriers in place and these rules to prevent competition for Major League Soccer and Soccer United Marketing. 
um, in the domestic marketplace. So, so you're starting a team tomorrow. Where, where do you go? What do you do? Do you go into your local team? You've got a few people that are involved, whether it's from a monetary standpoint or a community standpoint. Do you, do you go into UPSL, MPSL? What, what's the ideal situation or starting point? Say I want to start a team tomorrow. How much money do you get? <laughs> well, I guess that depends on who you're going and, and raising. Like, what do you think about the supporter own stuff? Like, do you think that that's sustainable? I know Love Detroit, it. and do, do you think that that's the, uh, a sustainable and kind of the way forward to get the community with skin in the game and, and that yeah, type of thing? Absolutely. And I think that is the way. I think that, you know, Chattanooga and Detroit are proving that. I think it's an idea that has a lot of traction mm. in, you know, lower league fans, and it's proven around the world. You know, uh, it's a way to, you see it in the Bundesliga, like it, it's real and it can scale. Um, the Federation is hostile to that in the pro game. They have uh, regulations in place that prevent 51% ownership of fans from uh, teams in higher divisions. I think it's like 30% or something they allow to max out in the first division, according to the USSF standards. And I might be slightly wrong on there. It's somewhere 2030, somewhere around there, but it's significantly less than half. It's not allowing for a control and interest. And these rules are written to, to just keep the status quo. Like if you, if any angle that you look at the, the structure of the sport, you see these, you see like the relationship between the rules and the agenda. Yeah, and I don't think it's biased in me to say that. I think that's that's a somebody who didn't know anything about the sport or these kind of soccer politics. If they did the research and looked at it, they would see that this is the way it is, and it's structured to maintain the status quo. Do you, do you think MLS was started with the right intentions? You mentioned earlier in the call that it was started out as, as almost this effort to have the clubs that were involved to grow alongside each other and make it sustainable so that it, because MLS was around once, it kind of died and came back in the 90s, right? So it was the second attempt at this to make it so that it was sustainable for clubs and then they've just kind of gone off the track through greed and you know the domination of of these ownership yeah. have a control of everything yeah i mean mls started in 1996 um you know it lives as a successor to the original nasl mm. um in the 70s with the cosmos when the cosmos were huge and that was all about um Big spending, but, you know, world-level competition. You know, the Cosmos at that time, the results show, and they played international friendlies and stuff like that. Like, they were competing with the big boys in the world. Mm. Uh, but other teams couldn't keep up. It, there was, it was just kind of like a toxic, extreme version of um, – and we see those toxic, extreme versions in – World football. I mean, you know, the billion dollar owners. Manchester City, Chelsea. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's, but it was an outlier. So you have that extreme in the cosmos and then everybody else around it in a low budget environment um, and a population that just wasn't as soccer savvy and soccer just wasn't as popular then as it is now. I mean, it's just not, it just wasn't as big a part of the culture. It was a star show for the Cosmos because, hey, if, if soccer culture isn't very big, but hey, 
we get Pele. Like everybody knows who Pele is. Like yeah, we're yeah. You, giving you the best of the best. People are gonna show up. But you know, the, the baseline of everybody else is much higher now. Mm. So I think there was an abundance of caution when uh, and it you know basically that free spending of the cosmos just kind of drove the league out of business. Um, well, and, and you saw some, you still see some of that, maybe not to that extreme as you're saying, but MLS has kind of functioned like that for the last 20 years or so, right? Where you've had a David Beckham and uh, Steven Gerrard and, and various different other... No, but, but MLS has, has restricted those through the rules to like three players per roster who were on unlimited That's budgets right. and everybody else was kept down super yeah. low. So like they were on teams where you'd have three guys making say $5 million a year or something like that. And um, the rest of the team payroll, 32 guys making a combined, like a $2 million payroll for 30 guys. Mm. So you got guys in there making 40 grand walking into the locker room next to this, these two, one or two guys who are making $5 million. That's, that's, that's mental. And that can't be good for like team chemistry and bonding. So right. you know, like Beckham's on 10 mil and you're on 40 grand and barely paying the rent. Right. Right. <laughs> and that, that was the way it was to, to capitalize off the star power um, of those stars for TV, which TV ratings had never been good for MLS. Mm. Um, but, you know, like I said, the, the fan base has gotten savvier. The interest has gotten bigger. And at some point you just have to recognize that market conditions have changed. Mm. Um, and that they're leaving money on the table because I firmly believe that if the interest is there and the knowledge is there, that if they took the train wheels off now, these owners who have a lot of money and could afford to do it, the people who are bought into major league soccer could play with the big boys. You know, let's, I'll give you a, for example, you know, the, the team that I came into, you know, MLS, knowledge with, with the New England Revolution, right? I'm from Massachusetts. Bob Kraft owns the New England Revolution. It's like an offshoot of the Patriots. Mm-hmm. Bob Kraft is a billionaire. Bob Kraft has big boy money. Bob right. Kraft has a 68,000 seat stadium there that, you know, COVID notwithstanding, he sells out for every Patriots game. Right. Understanding cultural considerations aside, anytime you have a big international game there if the u.s national team shows up or if brazil plays or mexico they sell out the stadium too mm-hmm. um you know manchester united comes to play a friendly they sell out the stadium too people know people can wake up and watch the premier league and they do more people watch the premier league on tv than watch mls in this country and it's not even close right. and more people watch liga mx's than watch the premier league that's right. a whole nother discussion the kind of um toxic Anglophilism, that no offense, that is kind of also uh, hamstringing our fan development because the powers that be just don't want right. to involve Latinos and em- embrace Latino American culture in the definition of what American soccer is. We, but we all those, to, all those things. Well, well, one second, and I'll finish yeah, up. Yeah, all those fine. forces are there; they exist, but they're just not captured by MLS. I saw a stat that says that Major League Soccer captures between 7 and 13% of the U.S. soccer market. Um, and I believe that to be totally true. Yeah, that's crazy, though. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, and it, but it's real. If you really get a hard think about it and you think about the ratings for the Premier League, the, the Mexican population, the ratings for Liga MX, um, you know, the 
the attendance of all these niche leagues that we've talked about for most of this podcast and weight all that collective against exactly what's in the MLS orbit, it is. It's like 10% of the, of, the, of the market. So to wrap it up, wrap up the point, the, the people are smart. If you took the training wheels off and said, Bob Kraft, go, go play in the world market. Go sell out Gillette Stadium, sign Messi, you know, make a play, see what you can do. Mm-hmm. That stadium would sell out, you know, 17 home games a year. Right. But, and he would make billions of dollars there. But the idea is to protect the NFL. There's, there's a lot of, of, there's so much overlap between Major League Soccer owners and NFL owners that um, there's only a small sliver of the NFL owners that, that have uh, MLS teams also. I, I don't want to, I'm getting into a territory where I don't have the stats handy to back up all the things I'm saying. So I, I want to be cautious with how uh, adamant I am in, in some of these specific points, but the overlap is there, Kraft is there, um, you know, Arthur Blank is there. Do you have this kind of, and it's certainly in the formation of MLS, Kraft, Lamar Hunt, um, you know, Kroenke, Anschutz, all these people who are the big money people in MLS have these NFL interests. Um, and half, and they're just, half of them own English Premier League teams as well, right? I mean, it's right. like, it's just and one But now they're trying to close that up. They're trying to work against the natural flow of the system yeah. so that they can reduce their risk. They don't want to re- make the big risk for the big reward. They just want to get in there, protect their investment, see if they can just reduce their risk and get out of there. But they, why not both? You know, that's, that's what I've been thinking. The success of soccer is not going to decrease the success of the NFL. The NFL is our number one sport in this country, and it probably always will be. And I don't see soccer as a threat to that. That's what it's like that kind of uh, total, what's the word, by, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Mm. Dichotomy, like that it has to be one or the other. It's not a zero sum game. Like, I'm but still an NFL probably, fan. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm still an NFL fan. I dropped $300 on NFL Sunday ticket to watch those Patriots. All but right. at the same time, I know that Bob Kraft is not what's right for soccer. Yeah. But he could be, you know, just do both. Make more money, but take a little bit of risk with it. So, so, that, so it's like the people at the top of the chain just hedging their bets. They're just mitigating the risk of, of changing anything. He got in early to MLS and he, pays $2 million, he paid $2 million to get the revs off the ground. And he's a billionaire. He bought, he bought the revs for like $2 million in 1996. And he owns the stadium outright that he plays the NFL games in. So even if it was totally empty and he got 10,000 people in a 68,000 seat stadium, oh he's God. already got that stadium and that's all profit for him. There's no motive for him to do any more. All right, so so let's bring it back to sort of the, because the, that, that's like, to me is, uh, it, you can go down the rabbit hole with that because you can't really control any of it. So <laughs> anybody that that's listening, and even myself, like I'm really curious, what can people do as more of a, a sort of DIY, punk rock sort of style of movement in the US that, 
instead of us worrying about that and what the MLS is doing and, you know, all the rest of it, what can people do at grassroots level? And, and sort of whether it is, I asked you kind of before as a, not a joke, but like kind of tongue in cheek, if you were starting a team tomorrow, where would you go? And is it UPSL? Is it MPSL? Or even beneath that, just grassroots level? I think like it's what? beneath that. I think, it, okay. I think that's where the, that's where the, all the interesting stuff happens is mm-hmm. these local leagues, regional leagues, the regional league movement is fascinating now. Um, you got the, like the Gulf Coast Premier League and this uh, local travel. So you still, you still have these kind of local rivalries that are built in, um, but there's enough, there is city to city travel to like make it interesting and have an away day. But those away days are close enough to not be cost prohibitive so people can do them. Like if you right. have a, a state league where you can travel 50 miles to each game, like you know, you could do in a car ride of under an hour. Like that's, that's, I think, where the real interesting stuff is. And you're capitalizing on these rivalries that are natural, that exist in like high school sports already. So why not have them exist, you know, city to city? You know, you know that in the Gulf Coast Premier League, like um, Mobile, Alabama against uh, Gulfport, Port City, um, Port City FC and Gulfport, Mississippi versus AFC Mobile in Mobile, Alabama, they're only like 50 miles apart. Right. So, uh, and they had a big rivalry going and they took it to the MPSL now, but um, they had like 1500 people out at that game and amazing atmosphere, supporters. So tapping into those natural local rivalries rather than trying to force things. And, you know, this balkanization and separation of all these leagues really stands in the way of, of creating more of those rivalries because you have teams that are in the same town in some cases or very close to each other in others that should be competing against them but have to go past those teams to get to another team that's bought into that same league system as opposed to somebody who's local but in another league. That's a major problem. So, so is, this, is this more so that... I'm not saying the state should operate it, but like, for example, we run the leagues here in Phoenix that it should be look internally, make a great state league so that it is Phoenix champion going against a Tucson champ or Flagstaff yep. or, or whatever yes. you spin it. Yes. And then maybe there's some sort of regional play, but in, yeah. initially just start with an Arizona state cup and then like an Arizona amateur cup. And yeah, yeah. I, I think that because all of that's attainable. And as you said, yeah. I think that, going in because once you start having to travel and we, we've had te- local teams go into the open cup before and then they struggle once you have to go to california because guys have got to work and it's costs to go uh, you know take a couple of days off work to drive out to california or whatever else so and the other thing is integrating the ethnic teams into the mainstream system mm-hmm. and bridging that divide because that culture is popping it's exactly. already out there it's amazing you mm-hmm. go out to you know the Latino leagues on the weekends, you will see thousands of people. I went to the, they have a league here in Chicago where I live called CLASA, Chicago Latino American Soccer Association. And they have, you know, between 500 and 2,000 people out at games, sometimes with no stands, just standing around the field, ringing the field like three deep. (laughs) Um, And at the bigger games, they have it in stadiums. The final last year, they had like 3,700 people out at a high school football stadium for, you know, police, all this, everything um, for, the, for the final, but all, all Latino. And there's money in those leagues and there's professional players in those leagues. Mm-hmm. But because the system doesn't allow for this semi-pro, as we talked about at the beginning, 
semi-pro structure, it has to be totally unsanctioned. There's no place in the formal system for that. That's a problem. Those, we would do better at integrating if we could provide a place for actual semi-pro soccer to exist, for people to play and make money, even if it's you know, $300 a game or $100 a goal, that sort of thing. There's no place. We have to divorce amateur soccer from the college system. Colleges need to be sidelined and gotten out of this thing. That will allow the space to have full season amateur, which can feed into full season semi-pro. And then the, the existence of that full season semi-pro will bridge the gap to the cash turn, prize tournaments and bring those players and clubs into one system where there's the possibility of everybody making money the way they are now and being involved in the system. I don't think it's, it's as much a issue. Uh, there is cultural gaps and there is distrust and there's you know, all of the racial issues that we have in this country do come into play there. But structurally, if there was a place for these independent Latino-owned clubs, independent you know, Black immigrant-owned clubs that play off the radar now to come into the formal structure, we would see a major shakeup in terms of who the teams are that could rise up. There's so many teams out there that are playing at a higher level that um, just aren't allowed access into the system the way it's structured. And I believe that it's structured that way purposely. Do you think that it's also missing that we've seen the example just for locally here, and I'm sure you've seen it covering the non-leagues over the years. Do you see it that a lot of the clubs lack the fundamentals of running a club like a club should be run? So you mentioned earlier, you need someone that is in charge of marketing. You need someone that says, even even at amateur level, like we have a, a pub team here in Phoenix, Phoenix Celtic, it's all expat guys. But someone has to take turns doing everything, you know, like, all right, you've got, you need to sort the kits out. And like, we have a bit of a system in that. But do you see that that is maybe a part of the amateur dilemma? I know it's the same in England, maybe globally. It's just, it's a bit of a labor of love, right? Until it's, until you get to a point where maybe it's like, all right, we'll take it a bit more seriously because now you are playing for money or you are playing for an opportunity to get more sponsorship or whatever it is. But wouldn't you say that in the open system, all those clubs would find their level. You know, that team that you just described might be in the 10th division. Morelia of Chicago, who I just described is outside the system. They might be in the second division, you know, but we don't know. They're both kind of like on the fringes of the system now because we don't really have a system, but everything kind of shakes itself out if you have proper structure. So talking about idealism, do you ever see it shaking out where we do live in a country where we do have a system that is a promotion relegation, that it is uh, the ideal soccer league that we all want to be part of and support? I have to remain optimistic. I do. I wouldn't be putting so much time and effort into this if I didn't. Um, But I, I do because I think that more and more people, especially of the younger generations, people who aren't already financially tied into um, the MLS model, like they see it and they're pushing it. And even if like the USL and the USL is not connected to the NISA either, like there's disconnects all throughout the system, like we said, but I was just talking to somebody on Twitter today. Like if you look at the MLS model and their limited access, and you look at the, the gatekeeping requirements that they've put up, like building your own soccer stadium, you know, Let's look at Louisville, and they also have their market size requirements. Mm-hmm. Something's got to give. 
you Louisville, they sell out like most of their games pre-COVID, obviously. Nice new stadium. Um, and they built this nice new stadium, oh. right, which seats like 18,000 people. You know, it mm -hmm. meets the MLS requirements of the soccer-specific stadium. But because they're not on MLS's list and MLS says they want to, you know, extract 300 million additional dollars or um, or just not have it in their plans because it's not a big enough TV market or whatever, right. like, or they're going to cap it at 32, but they might just keep on expanding to take yeah. that money. But, the money but, right. just, but, you know, take the thought process to its logical conclusion, like, there's no place there. And these teams, because the interest is there, they keep building more structure. And even though they don't have the immediate opportunity to move up, like if they're just permanently second division and there's a second division, this infrastructure is building out. And now there's 10 clubs that have 18,000 seat stadiums in the second division. It's never been like that in the past, you True. know? Yeah. But that's, that's like big structural things that are changing fast in the country. It's a bit of a gold rush of sorts, do you see? Do you think there's a lot of people that, maybe not even sort of billionaire, millionaire level people, but there is a, a bit of a gold rush to get involved and jump on the train of, of US soccer growth. Do you, do you see that as like a, a bit of a common trend running out? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what's driving the explosive growth all the way down to the 400 teams in the UPSL. Like people, they see it, they see the dream, they see the success stories, they, even though it's hard. Um, and even though you're more likely to fail than succeed, that's kind of the case in everything. You know, you gotta, you gotta find, find a way. I mean, the pitfalls, if you're willing to put in the work, it's very possible. But if you just want to pretend that if your followers on Twitter are going to equate to butts in seats, then that's where people, a lot of people go wrong. Delusional. But if you, if you go out and make those local community connections and you meet people and you talk to people and you you really have those conversations and build it. Like so many clubs have been built that way. The, right. It's not, a, you don't need a new blueprint. The blueprint's already there. And the, the way I see the pressure keep coming is because it's those club, those teams that used to have nobody there that now they all have 200 fans. The teams that used to have 200 fans, now they all have 500. The 500s have a thousand and it's not my opinion, it's the reality. Like, um, so there's gotta be somewhere for that energy to go. And when it gets shut off, it's, it's very difficult, you know? But if you saw that there was a, a pathway back up, then people might stick around. You know, I'm a supporter of a club that was killed. You know, I was living in Atlanta um, and disillusioned with MLS and some and kind of, over the, the revs and that early experience and having relocated, I was like, well, let me see what's going on out here. And uh, I started going to the Atlanta Silverbacks games within the NASL. And I saw that they had their own stadium and they had, uh, you know, three to 5,000 people coming out for, to the games. I was there in 2014 when they went to open cup run and knocked off two MLS teams and made it to the quarterfinal. And then two years later, got the rug pulled out from under them. Owner didn't want to keep investing. But they, unlike most teams, which then go out of business, they found another owner and kept, kept it alive in the short season NPSL. And without the presence of Atlanta United there yet, they kept it going down in the fourth tier. Um, they kept it going as the amateur club. And the first game as the amateur club, there was 1,600 people there. So, and that whole season in 2016, there was 1,500 people average coming to see the Silverbacks still play. 
Now, when LA United came and they blew the whole thing up right. in 2017, that dropped down to like 200 people a game. And it was pretty sad. And it, it, they kept it going from 2017 to 18. And I was there. I moved from Atlanta to Chicago in 2018. But, so I was there for five years through that whole demise. And I saw it from, you know, you'd, there'd be lines, cars backed up waiting to get in there when it was 3,000 to 5,000 people. And then you're in an empty stadium with just the supporter group and 20 of us in the corner. It, it by 2018. Um, like a tragic. That's, that's what the system, as it's structured now, you know, is going to do. It's a club killer because there's no place for those clubs to go. And there's no opportunity for those clubs to make that money by selling those players. We go back to that, you know, training compensation and solidarity payments and participating in the, the world soccer market. That's as big a part of it as the movement of the clubs and the glory um, associated with the, you know, movement. But so you, make, you hit on a couple of key points, player development and, and player money, mm -hmm. uh, TV and streaming rights and clubs and teams making a, a play for ESPN Plus or other platforms. NISA got its B in sport deal, which we're very excited about. People who are advocates of independent systems, but streaming and TV money, uh, merchandise, the marketing online, selling, to, selling uniforms and gear to people who might not attend in person, but will provide a revenue source for your club and then using that money to go out and invest locally, to market locally, to try to put butts in seats and to make those local connections. Mm. That's where it's all got to come together. Well, it sounds like there's a lot to be optimistic about anyway. And I think that there's, there's also a, a tremendous opportunity for people that maybe don't want to be part of uh, MLS, some, this big sort of, even like EPL, sort of big Coca-Cola style soccer, but one grassroots that one community engagement we had this conversation here locally that phoenix rising our usl team and they're, they're doing some good things and it's great the stadium's small and you can kind of interact and but everyone's oh well it's gonna be great when we get to the mls i'm like well be careful what you wish for because the dollar beer nights out of the window the ten dollar tickets out of the window and now all of a sudden you're just a, a number to the club right whereas yeah. now it's this cool kind of cool community environment so i think it's it's there because more people like you i think you said it earlier in the call just becoming more educated about it and and what they're asking for more whereas previous was like well just give me whatever you've got and now it's like no nah, like i want more from my experience from from local football and from soccer in general i think and once you've experienced it and you see what's possible like you can't go back yeah. you know and and the local travel and the regional travel and these places that we used to go um and just to feel that energy of those couple thousand people packed into a small stadium is like incomparable. You don't get the same energy, even in a big packed stadium, it's different. And that's exciting too, you know, going to, I've been, I've been over to England, I've been to, I saw England play at Wembley, I've been to um, big matches and I've, and I've obviously been to the NFL, like mm -hmm. that's kind of comparable, you know, yeah. but that's a, that's a different thing. Yeah. But yeah. there's no other place in the sporting landscape that gives you the energy of lower division soccer in even in the United States in what we have now that Phoenix rising energy that Atlanta Silverbacks NASL energy like my, minor league baseball doesn't give you that it's mm -hmm. like it's a, it's like it's a drug you like tapping into the main vein you sure. know once you have it 
um, you realize that there is no other offering like that. College sports gets there. You know, and I've heard people say that, and I think it's true. College yeah. football can get closer to that. But it's way more tribal, right? Yeah, that's the only other thing that exists in this country that can kind of come close to that. But once people taste it, they don't want to let it go. Yeah. And I think that yeah. more and more people have tasted it over the years, and it's, it's yeah. built out. But for sure. All right, Steve, it's been amazing, mate. Great, great information, yeah. really informative. So before we let you go, what's the, what's the place for people to get hold of you? Uh, yeah. Social media, website? So one thing that we didn't talk about that I do want to plug right now is yeah, that our main output at Non-League America is we run this social media handle at Non-League USA. Please follow us at Non-League USA on Twitter. Um, we're also at Non-League America on Instagram, but we're much more active on Twitter. We have like 9,200 followers on Twitter. But you need to check out our documentaries. In order to facilitate the change that we wanna see, we've been going out to these communities, going out to these clubs and documenting the history and stories of these clubs. Nice. We work with a professional videographer, Jamisa Johnson, Peace Living Films. You know, she goes around the country, travels to different clubs and, and we tell their, their stories in mini docs. It's almost like if people are familiar with COPA 90, we're, we're kind of like, the COPA 90 of, uh, you know, lower division American soccer. And so we have a, a new doc coming out this week that's about to drop in the next, I know they're putting the motion graphics on it now, it should be on the next 24 to 48 hours. That's the story of uh, Goldsboro Strike Eagles FC, nice. which is a, a club that exists in Eastern North Carolina in a small, tough town in Eastern North Carolina. Um, but we wanted to put those clubs on the map. We want to tell those stories. You can check out those documentaries on our YouTube channel. Just search Non-League America on YouTube. It'll, it'll come right up. You can also see those full documentaries on our Facebook page. Search uh, Non-League America or Non-League USA on Facebook. Facebook slash Non-League USA, I think. Um, and they're out there. So we've done with uh, African immigrant clubs out of Maryland, Superdelegates FC, uh, the Vietnamese uh, soccer scene down in Texas and Houston area. You can see all these documentaries uh, on our on our um on our social media channels so check those out please yeah amazing so you, you heard it here everyone support local football and and check out non-league america and, and get down to your local clubs and support them it's important for for the growth of the game and also the, the get get the good stuff out of the, the game that we all want right yeah thank you so much for having me yeah no doubt it's been great having you on mate all right, that's it, everyone. It's full time the end of today's show. I want to thank Steve again from Non-League America for coming on the show. And a big shout out to everyone for tuning in and checking us out. We'll be back on Tuesday with myself and Mr. Thomas Hurdle. And until then, get with us on the web at healthyobsession.soccer and Instagram at healthy underscore obsession. Be safe, be well, and thank you again for tuning in and checking out A Healthy Obsession. Cheers. <laughs>